Good morning. Well, I promised when we started this series that it would be it would take somewhere between five weeks and one year, and uh, it looks like we're going to finish in eight weeks. So that's not too bad. Uh, this morning, we're uh, we're going to consider the last of the four major covenants, the new covenant. And then next week, Lord willing, we're going to do a wrap-up of this uh, this covenant series and kind of really look at it from the high level at what are the things that unite the promises of the, of the four covenants and how all of it is fulfilled in Christ. Today, here's where we're going. We're going to see first to whom the promises of the new covenant were given. Then we're going to see that this covenant, like the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants, is a unilateral covenant. We'll see the, we'll look specifically at the four core promises of this covenant, which are the promise of a new heart and a new spirit, the promise of forgiveness and cleansing, of relationship and fellowship with God, and lastly, a promise of restoration of place, provision, and the presence of God. We'll look at the fact that this covenant is irrevocable. Uh, and you'll see that statements are made about this covenant that are very similar to those made regarding the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic. And finally, we'll look at the conclusion, which is the fulfillment of the new covenant in Christ. God is the one who ends up fulfilling that which he has said in all respects. To begin with, to whom are these the covenant promises of the new covenant made? Jeremiah 31 spells it out rather explicitly. God says, Behold, days are, are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. Now, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, as we've said before, are two divisions within the 12 tribes of Israel. These divisions began after the death of Solomon, and they have abided until now. Uh, the, the, the northern tribes, the house of Israel, and the southern tribes, the house of Judah, have remained divided. Luke 22 is the passage in which it's one of the gospel passages in which Jesus presents the Lord's Supper as the sign or memorial of the new covenant. And in that passage, he says to his disciples, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The twelve disciples, of course, were all Jews. But in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that the Lord's Supper, which is the memorial of the new covenant, the sign, was to be the practice of, of the entire church, of all who believe in Jesus Christ. Indeed, the church to which Paul was writing in, in Corinthians uh, consisted predominantly of Gentiles, not of Jews. 1 Corinthians 11.23, Paul said, I received of the Lord that which I also deliver to you. So Paul was instructed by Christ, by God, to pass this remembrance on to the body. 
And it had long before this already become common practice in the body. Many passages in both Testaments declare that God's plan of redemption always included His intention to draw Gentiles in as His treasured possession, as His covenant people, along with Jews. The promises of all four major covenants belong not only to Jewish believers, but also to Gentile believers, as those who have, by God's grace, been grafted in as heirs of the covenants. Ephesians chapter 2 puts it like this. Paul says, speaking to Gentiles, Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And in verse 17, he says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, through Christ, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. The promises of the new covenant are realized in Christ, just as is true with all the other covenants. And these eternal promises belong to all of those who are in Christ, regardless of their background. Now, this is the the central issue, the one true determinant of whether uh, a person is included or excluded in the covenant promises. Whether Jew or Gentile, one who is in Christ by faith is an heir of these promises. And whether Jew or Gentile... If you are not in Christ by faith, you are not heirs of these covenant promises. Now, that may seem very simple to you, but there's a lot of people who are disputing that point. (laughs) Who are the heirs of the covenant? I believe God has made it quite clear. Just as with the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants, the new covenant is presented as a unilateral covenant. You remember when we first got this thing started and we looked at the Abrahamic covenant, we saw a pattern in the language of the covenant. And that is that the unilateral covenants in which God is swearing by himself all have a repetition of the phrase, I will. And I'm going to show you three slides here. Jeremiah 31. These are the two passages that Leonard read. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. You'll see multiple times the phrase, I will. And then in Ezekiel, and this takes up two slides, verses 22 to 32, the phrase, I will, actually occurs 11 times in those verses. In the New Covenant, we see promises which God swears by himself to keep. So the fulfillment of these promises is dependent only on his trustworthiness. Now I want to spend a little more time on that point in this message as we deal with this final covenant, because it's exceedingly important for us to be clear about whose actions guarantee that we receive these promises. Particularly because the Bible's answer to that question kind of flies in the face of our expectations. 
Now, while I know uh, in this room I'm not likely to find many who would miss the mark on, on this foundational truth, the fact remains that there are churches all over the world who claim the name Christian but deny the clear testimony of both testaments regarding this point, which is the difference between eternal death and eternal life, whose actions guarantee that we who belong to Christ receive the covenant promises. To examine that question, let's look again at Ezekiel, or look through Ezekiel 36. The unilateral nature of the new covenant is presented in a fairly surprising way in Ezekiel 36. The core passage here is verses 22 to 32. And that passage begins and ends, verse 22 and verse 32, with an indictment against Israel for having profaned the name of God among the nations to which he had dispersed them. God had had removed Israel from the land of promise and Judah from the land of promise with two separate captivities because of their gross idolatry and the multitude of their sins. The structure of this passage uses a, a very simple literary device called an inclusio. Think of it as a parenthesis. And it shows up a lot in the Old Testament. The way an inclusio works is simply that the central message of the passage is bracketed at each end by a statement that stands out in some way from what's in between. And that mechanism serves to highlight both the bracket statements and the core central statement. In the case of Ezekiel 36, there's a very clear contrast, uh, almost startling contrast, between the two brackets and what comes in between. Verse 22 and 32, you see these indictments. In each of these statements, you see that the declaration is made to the house of Israel using the phrase, O house of Israel. And in in both of those verses, you see God say, what I'm about to do is not for your sake. After the first of these two bracketing statements in verse 22, the very next thing God declares in verse 23 is his intention to vindicate his holy name. Now, by the way, in verse 16 to 21 that I had, I asked Leonard to read as well, God goes through a lengthy indictment of Israel. And he says, the whole time they were away in the nations, they defiled his name even further than they had when they were in the land. They profaned his name among the nations. As his people, instead of glorifying him and honoring his name, They were a witness to the whole world that God's promises had up to that point not been fulfilled. And so God saw that as a profaning, making common or trivializing of his name. So God says he's going to deal with that in verse 23. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. I don't know about you, but if I were on the receiving end of that kind of statement, I would think that the the hammer's about to be dropped. How would you expect God to go about vindicating his holy name after his people had dragged it through the mud and profaned it among the nations? Would the holy, all-powerful God be justified if he simply chose to destroy Israel? 
Would that be a reasonable response to the gross and relentless violation of his character that Israel had manifested for generation after generation? You bet it would. Just as it would be a perfectly reasonable response for God to destroy us for the gross violation of his character that we have manifested over and over If you believe you deserve something from God's hand other than eternal condemnation, then you believe something about yourself that is untrue, desperately untrue. In Psalm 51, after being caught in the sins of adultery and then murder to cover up adultery, David said this as he cried out to God for forgiveness. Psalm 51.4 Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified when thou dost speak and blameless when thou dost judge. Whatever God decides to mete out to us by way of judgment is justified in light of our unholiness and disloyalty. But according to Ezekiel 36... What is it that God says he's going to do to vindicate his holy name? By giving his people what they deserve? No. By making them worthy of his presence. God's answer to how he will vindicate his holy name is the new covenant. Let's look at the promises of this covenant. And we'll come back to this idea of vindication of God's character. There are four promises. A new heart and a new spirit, which includes the writing of God's law upon the heart. Forgiveness and cleansing. Relationship and fellowship with God. I will be your God, you will be my people, and you will know me. And then restoration of place, of provision, and of presence. The last point is the undoing of the curse. And really all of these have to do with the undoing of the curse. Let's take these one at a time. A new heart and a new spirit. God will turn the hearts of his people to himself. Now this promise has its origins way back in Deuteronomy, which was written almost 900 years before Jeremiah's declaration of the new covenant and over a thousand years before Ezekiel's declaration of the new covenant. According to Deuteronomy 30, God promises at the beginning of the chapter that at some point after Israel has been banished from the land of promise and carried away into captivity because of all their abominable sins, they will return to him. And he will gather them from the nations into the in, uh, where they had been dispersed back into the land. And he'll prosper them even more than he prospered their forefathers. But the kicker in this passage is how Israel will come to that point. In verses 6 through 8, God says, Moreover, Yahweh, the Lord, your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. And then he says at the end, And you shall you shall again obey the Lord. Literally, the Hebrew is, you shall Return and obey the Lord. And observe all his commandments which I have 
commanding you today. In Jeremiah 31, God declares that He will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and He says it won't be like the previous covenant, speaking of the Mosaic covenant, the bilateral covenant that Israel broke. And then He proceeds to lay out the promises of the new covenant. And the very first promise in Jeremiah 31 is this, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. In Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27, God expands on that promise. And he says, and he he clarifies how it is that he writes his law upon the hearts of his people. He says, moreover, I, God, will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be, you will be careful to observe my ordinances. God will transform the heart of his stubborn and stiff-necked people who've relentlessly broken covenant with him. He will make them obedient. And the way he will accomplish this is by placing his spirit within his people. By the work of his indwelling Holy Spirit, his people will keep his commandments from the heart. Not the letter of the commandments, but the spirit of the commandments. 2 Corinthians 3, 5 and 6. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, because the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And as we saw in our second session on the Mosaic Covenant, the Spirit of God's law is what? It's love. It's loving, it's loving God and loving our neighbor in response to the love that God has shown to us. Love is the fulfillment of the law. God puts his spirit within his people and the result is true spiritual life and genuine obedience. In Ezekiel 37, 11 through 14, God says, and I'm not going to read that passage, but you're certainly welcome to look at it. He says he's going to breathe life into the dead bones of Israel and put his spirit within them. God gives life where there was only death. And he says much the same thing in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 2, just before the passage we saw a few minutes ago about how God brought the Gentiles into the fold as joint heirs of the covenant promises with Israel, Paul starts that chapter with these words. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then verse 4 he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Together with Christ. (laughs) By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. How many ways can he say this is all about Christ? (laughs) 
Ephesians chapter 2, the next couple of verses, verses 8 through 10. You guys know this is a great Awana verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one should boast. And then the very next thing he says is, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How do we come to be obedient to God's law from the heart? He makes us obedient. He causes the transformation. He writes his law upon our hearts. The life that God gives to those he calls as his own is Christ's life. And the obedience that God produces in those he calls as his own is Christ's obedience. Now, I know I wear this next verse out, but I have to go yet again to one of the most amazing and foundational statements I've ever heard. Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. A new heart and a new spirit from God produce in us the obedience that God requires. The second promise of this covenant is forgiveness and cleansing. And inseparable from the promise of a new heart and a new spirit is the promise of forgiveness and cleansing. In Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-four, right after God said that he would write his law on the hearts of his people and make them to know him, he says, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. In Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-five, I'm bouncing back and forth between those two verse, the passages. He says, then I will sprinkle clean... And this is right after he said he will gather his people from the lands into which he had dispersed them. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. And then in verse 31, God says, Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. It's pretty powerful. By the way, you want to know what genuine godly contrition looks like? There it is. There is no place in the heart of the child of God for any form of self-exaltation. Until you admit to God that in the light of His holiness, you are a miserable, wretched sinner deserving only eternal condemnation, then you think way too highly of yourself. What gives the believer confidence and joy and peace and freedom of self-pity and depression and every form of useless self-absorption is not that he thinks he has something to offer to God. It's that he knows he has nothing to offer to God. That God alone has made him worthy to stand in his holy presence. That is the most freeing thing you will ever know about yourself. A lousy self-image isn't pathological. It's a healthy view of reality. The problem that gives rise to self-pity, depression, 
Even suicide arising from depression is the, is not the absence of confidence in self, it's the absence of confidence in Christ. By God's doing, His people will see the heinousness of their disloyalty and rebellion against God and they will mourn. I don't have these verses to show you because of time, but write down if you're writing down Zechariah chapter 12 verses 9 through 14. And Jeremiah 50, verses 4 and 5. Zechariah 12, 9 to 14, and Jeremiah 54 to 5. They talk about godly sorrow. God promises that he'll work this true contrition, this repentance, into the hearts of his people as part and parcel of his work to put his spirit within us, to write his law upon our hearts, and to utterly and forever cleanse and forgive us. Now, I want to go back for just a moment to the idea of cleansing. In verse 33 of Ezekiel 36, God begins talking in detail about his plan to restore the land to its former glory and holiness. And he says to Israel, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places rebuilt. In the next chapter, Ezekiel 37, the dry bones chapter, in verse 23, right after God says he'll reunite the house of Israel and the house of Judah into one kingdom and give them one king, and he names that King David, by the way, he says, they will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and I will cleanse them. They will be my people and I will be their God. When God saves us, He makes us clean in His sight once and for all. He takes us who were helplessly lost and spiritually dead, who were enemies of God, and He cleanses us, forgives us, puts His Holy Spirit within us, clothes us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, even though He is fully aware, much more aware than we are, of how utterly we have profaned His holy name. (laughs) How does God vindicate His name? By making us holy. What a deal. He promises a new heart and a new spirit. He promises forgiveness and cleansing, and He promises relationship and fellowship with Himself. Jeremiah 31, verses 33 to 34. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they will be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. As you look at that passage, verse 34 begins with, They shall not. And then it says, They shall. They shall not teach each other to know Yahweh, because they shall all know Yahweh, from the least of them to the greatest. And those statements about what God's people will do, the personal knowledge that they will come to possess... Those statements are sandwiched between two statements about what God will do. 
And these I will statements are very critically connected to the they will statements in between. The only way that we come to know God is if He does some revolutionary things in us first. He has to do these things in us because until He radically changes us, we can't know Him. The light has no fellowship with the darkness. Until God addresses the eternal debt of our sin, until He breaks our hearts and brings us to contrition, until He cleanses us of our filthiness and writes His law upon our hearts, we cannot know Him. But thanks be to God that He promises to do all of those things to those whom He draws to Himself. (laughs) And because of the new man that God has created within us, we can know Him and we do know Him. And according to the words of our Savior on the night he was betrayed in his high priestly prayer, knowing him is our life. John seventeen three. This is eternal life that they may know thee, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. As believers in Jesus, the knowledge we have of him is not impersonal or esoteric. It is a personal, pervasive, and transforming knowledge. It's a knowledge that radically redefines our priorities, our longings, and our actions. In Philippians 3, Paul talked about the radical shift in his priorities that comes from knowing Christ and that comes from pursuing that knowledge. Whatever things were gained to me, this is after he listed all a bunch of stuff that that other people might look at him and say he should have pride in. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul says that nothing about him and his accomplishments matters. All that matters is that he is found in Christ. Possessing a righteousness that comes from God. And to what end, for what purpose does God put us in Christ and impart to us his righteousness? The next verse, that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. In verse 14, the end of 13 and 14, Paul says, one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the upward call, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The new covenant promises us that we who are in Christ are rightly related to God by His doing. He saved us so that we can know Him. (laughs) He paid the penalty for our sin. He cleansed us. He put His Spirit within us in order to bring us into relationship and fellowship with himself. The personal knowledge of our God is the very essence of our life. We're going to talk more 
about this beautiful reality of relationship with God next week when we wrap up this whole study of the covenants because that is the goal of the covenants. The last major promise, and it's really kind of three in one, and it's very tied to the relationship issue, is restoration of place, provision, and presence. The undoing of the curse. God promises restoration and blessing in the land of promise. He declares that Judah and Israel will be regathered from the lands into which he has dispersed them, and they will be placed back in the land that he gave to their forefathers. And then he says that he will abide, that God will abide in that place in their midst. In Ezekiel 36, after God declares that he will vindicate his holy name and cause the nations to know that he is God, he says to Israel, For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. And then he says, He'll cleanse them and put his spirit within them and they'll walk in his statutes. And then verse 28, he says, And you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. Then in verses 29 and 30, God follows the promise of restoration in the land with the promise of abundant provision in the land. Place and provision. Now, if I started putting up a bunch of passages that talk about the abundance of provision that God's people will know when we are restored, when we are placed in the the land of promise, uh, we'd be here a long time. (laughs) Because that is all over the prophets. It's all over the the, the, uh, both Testaments all the way up through Revelation 21 and 22. The place and the miraculous and bountiful provision of God go hand in hand throughout the Bible. But for the moment, let's focus on the promise of the land a little little further. In Ezekiel 37, God expands on the land promise. He says, Say to Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king will be king for all of them. They will no longer be two nations. They'll be one. Verse 24, My servant David will be king over them. Again, this is a long time after David was dead. And they will have one shepherd. They will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. Verse 25, And they shall live on the land that I gave to Jacob my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David my servant shall be their prince forever. Steve gets that. (laughs) We looked at the same passage when we were examining the Davidic covenant. And as you can see, the connection with David and the promise of the preeminent seed of David, Messiah, is all over this passage. But the fact is, Ezekiel 37 includes elements of all four of the major covenants. (laughs) It's an absolutely astounding passage that showcases the divine genius of God and the perfect unity of God's Word, and I highly encourage you to spend some time in it. The land promise, as we've seen in previous weeks, goes back to the original promise made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, the Abrahamic covenant, that was then restated to Isaac and restated to Jacob. 
the promise the promise of permanent restoration of God's people to the land is included in all four covenants. All four of the major covenants that we've looked at. And connected to this promise of restoration in the land is the promise of God's presence in the midst of his people. In fact, that's the point of the land. In Ezekiel verse 37, verses 27, uh, 26 to 28, right after God says he will regather his people and reunite them as one kingdom and place them in the land, just as he promised to Jacob, with David as ruler over them, see all the pieces coming together, he goes on to say, his, God's dwelling place will be in the midst of them. He says, I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them. And at the end of that passage, when uh, the nations will know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. The fundamental issue in the promise of the land, the place of abundance, and in the promise of the temple, the sanctuary, the dwelling place of God, is the relationship between God and his people. That which makes the place special is the presence of God. And that's not new. (laughs) Remember Exodus chapter 3 when Moses went up to Mount Sinai? He'd been a shepherd for a while, Jethro's part of Jethro's family after leaving Egypt. He went up to the mountain. He saw this bush that was burning but wasn't consumed by the fire. And he heard this voice from the bush. And the voice said to Moses, Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And what made the place holy? It was the presence of God. What made Eden holy was the presence of God in the midst of his people. And all of this talk throughout scripture concerning God's promise of the land is about the presence of God in the midst of his people. Revelation 21 and 22. That which makes the new Jerusalem special is the presence of God in the midst of his people. As John describes the incomparable vision of the new Jerusalem that's come down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. He says in Revelation 21, 22 to 24, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it. For the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations shall walk by its light and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. (laughs) The Lamb is Jesus Christ. He'll be the only temple that we need when we stand in His presence because the whole point of the temple is His presence. He will be the only light we'll need because He is the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. John 1, 9. You see, God's promises are never about stuff. His promises are never about real estate. His promises are about Him. As my brother 
Bob has said so eloquently, heaven is not a place, heaven is a person. And at the very core, the very heart of all of these amazing promises that we've been examining, is the promise of undistracted, unencumbered, unobstructed relationship with God. That relationship is life. There is no other. Everything else is an illusion. We'll talk much more about the centrality of relationship to God as the very heart of His plan of redemption throughout the ages next week when we wrap up this series on the covenant. Now, God is very, very emphatic about the fact that this is an irrevocable covenant. It can't be undone. That nothing in creation can undo His intention to accomplish these marvelous promises. Now, let me ask you if you think God can be any clearer than this. Immediately after God reveals the promises of the new covenant through the prophet Jeremiah, He says these words that are identical, almost identical to the words he spoke about his covenant promises to David, which are stated in Jeremiah 33. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then... The offspring of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. The only way that God will ever cast off Israel and renege on His covenant promises is if the fixed order of His creation ceases. If you can get rid of the sun, the moon, the stars, the waves of the sea, and everything else that you see that God has created, then God will be done with these promises. Otherwise, His promises to the house of Israel and the house of Judah and all who have been grafted into those promises by faith in Jesus Christ stand, and stand they do. God doesn't mince words here. (laughs) He acknowledges that his people do not deserve his forbearance and they do not merit these promises. At the end of verse 37, God says that the absolute certainty of his covenant faithfulness toward the offspring of Israel abides even in view of all that they have done. The very God who is mindful that we are but dust is the same God whose loving kindness, whose steadfast covenant faithfulness is as great as the chasm between heaven and earth. The same God who only and entirely by His own doing has separated from us our sins as far as the east is from the west. It's in Psalm 103. He has chosen to take us who were sinners, enemies, outlaws in his sight to take us who were helplessly lost and dead and to make us joint heirs with the king of kings. That is grace. In conclusion, 
a few words about the fulfillment of the new covenant. Just as with all of the other covenants, the only way that God's promises under the new covenant get fulfilled is because God fulfills them. And the one in whom he fulfills them is Jesus Christ. As with every other promise God has made to men, the one in whom we become recipients of the promises of the new covenant is Christ. And when I say in him, I mean just that. God means just that. That phrase is one of the most powerful phrases in all of scripture. In Christ. Jesus is the one who cleanses and cleanses us and secures our forgiveness. His death on the cross is the one and only sufficient sacrifice for our sin. His righteousness is the only righteousness that enables us to stand in the presence of our holy God. His presence within us is the new man. His Holy Spirit within us is the new heart who transforms us and who is at work in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Christ is the one in whom we have relationship with God. He draws us into His relationship with the Father. He is the way of access into the presence of God. He is the dwelling place. He is the throne room of Almighty God. He is the portion of our inheritance and our cup. The last thing I want to say is by way of a question. Why do we not yet see the complete change of heart that God promised in these covenants to impart to us? The change that, that is supposed to make us holy as He is holy. How is it that if we've been given a new heart and we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, we continue to sin daily and often unless you're different than me? If Christ in us is the one who sanctifies us, who makes us holy, not just in position but in practice, then why do we still so often act unholy? We're going to talk about that question more next week, but I want to, for now I want to say just this. The only good in us is God. He is indeed at work in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure, but He is clearly not finished with that process. (laughs) Just as we do not yet fully see the outcome of His promise to restore His people to the land, or His promise to manifest the reign of Messiah over all the kingdoms of the earth and to make every knee bow and every tongue confess that He is Christ to the glory of the Father. So we do not yet fully see the outcome of His promise to manifest His holiness in us. But, beloved, that day is coming. In John chapter... In 1 John chapter 3... We have this uh, beautiful promise. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He truly is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him 
purifies himself just as he is pure. For reasons only God fully knows, he who has already delivered us from the penalty and the power of sin has not yet fully delivered us from the presence of sin. Until he does, on the day that we stand before him glorified, we would do well to get our eyes off of ourselves and fix them on the author and perfecter of faith. Loving Father, thank you for these these amazing promises. Thank you, Lord, that we who profaned your name stand before you clean and forgiven forever. Thank you, Father, that that you have seen fit purely by your grace and your mercy toward us to call us to yourself, to put in us a new heart and a new spirit, to forgive and cleanse us. You have have granted to us the certainty that, that we will dwell in your very presence and that we will know you that we will know you forever. We thank you, Father. We can't begin to express that thanks. But we pray, I pray, and we pray together as a body, Lord, that our thanks to you for what you've done for us would manifest itself in holiness and in usefulness for your eternal purposes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.